Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, Marcus, every good story starts with a beginning. I'm Ray Coob. This is the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It begins August 20th, 1949, the day Philip Paris Lynott was born. Even though he was raised in Dublin, he was born in the West Midlands of England. He was a Brahmi. Who a, knew? I didn't know that was what a Brahmi was, but yes, that's, I guess, what he is. And even though his mom remained in London, he was raised by his grandparents in Dublin, and and his father wasn't really involved in his life very much at all as well. You could say his mother was a modern woman who knew what she was doing, and she knew she left her son in good hands with her parents. She wasn't having Cecil Paris be part of her son's life, even if she wasn't for a while. But Philomena and Phil were always close. And you notice, Marcus, she gave him her last name and gave him his father's last name as his middle name. We're talking about Philip Harris. Why not? And Lizzie this week on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. You could say it's a jailbreak, Marcus, and you wouldn't be wrong. <laughs> the boys are back in town quite often playing their dirty rock and roll. Before you two, they were the hot band from Ireland that was really carrying the banner for that, right? They were. They had a completely different sound. They started off very folky, bluesy, and uh, R&B, but once they flipped to a four-piece, they added that big sound that uh, Philip Lynott wanted to take over the world with. And you know, that's kind of what happened next, once they found their way together and forged what became Thin Lizzy. So that's kind of how Phil gets around to forming up the band. And we have one of those amazing charts of band membership in Thin Lizzy. They just will blow your mind trying to read it all and get it all like in focus all at the same time, right? The original trio was Phil Linett, Brian Downey, and Eric Bell. And then a cat named Eric Rickson came along right. once in a while and played some keys and some rhythm guitar. But it was pretty much the trio. And Not much was happening then, though. They weren't even getting traction. You know, Just as a local band, they weren't going anywhere yet. No, but they were still making noise. They got signed. They did three albums as a trio with Eric Bell on guitar. And then in 72, they had a hit, that remake of... Of whiskey in the jar, the Irish folk song. Good job. 
started getting them notice and then in the middle of a tour Eric Bell left the band and then Gary Moore jumped in and he and Phil Linet had a history together and then he played with the band for about a year and then he left and so Phil and uh, Brian Downey were like alright how are we going to solve this problem so Phil was like I'm getting two guitarists to join the band <laughs> so that we never have that problem, problem again <laughs> and then this way if we ever lose one guitarist we'll still have one well you know it's worth noting that Phil and Gary Moore had teamed up from an early age. They were in a band, an Irish band called Skid Row, and actually had records out and stuff like that before Phil started doing Thin Lizzy and before Gary did a you know a, a double back around to help them in spots. He would help them in the studio and he would occasionally join and then leave the band throughout the years. One of those great guitar players who I think is underappreciated, Gary Moore. He's in there. Then there's the other guys we were talking about. Brian Downey having been there through the whole thing, right? Brian yeah. Robertson and Scott Gorham, they're in there for a while. And then other people come and go through the decades. The list is pretty impressive. And you could say that it's like a badge of courage in rock and roll to be a member of Thin Lizzy, or, or it was at some point. To get to be in Thin Lizzy was like, wow, man, I did this, I did that, I'm in Thin Lizzy. You know, it was like really a major thing to achieve. And the names I'm talking about include uh, Midge Yor, who did work for them, right? Snowy White, yeah. John Sykes, who you know, Vivian Campbell, who you know, Damon Johnson, Marco Mendoza. These guys aren't slouches. They were all members of Thin Lizzy, and there's a lot of other people, too. They definitely had a revolving door with members through a period. That classic lineup, though, of Robertson, Gorham, Downey, and Linet did like four or five albums together, yes. and that was really the sound and what Phil Lynott was looking for, that tour de force, that big sound, and they were able to as many people said, they thought play better live than they did in the studio. And their albums are not slouches at all. They have some really good albums. But they said that back in those days when they were on fire, they were just blistering live. And you hear it in the Live and Dangerous record. You can hear it in the uh, Tower Theater record.
that whole story of them going from three to four and the tryouts involved and them originally not wanting Scott Gorham to be in the band, but because he was an American, it was a leg up for them to get noticed in America, which was something that Phil Lynott really, really wanted. He wanted to be big in America. And that first album they did, the sound of the two guitars didn't fully come together, but it developed as they continued to play together. And that distinct two lead guitar, two rhythm guitar sound of theirs really set the stage for a lot of bands moving forward in the 80s and the 90s. And that classic lineup, I think, is what people refer to when they really talk about Thin Lizzy and their music. You're talking about that lineup, and that's the lineup that's in this VHS footage was recently discovered, and uh, I found it on Louder Sound. It's Thin Lizzy, 1981, at a show in France, and there's four cuts from the Chinatown record. It's it, No one's seen this, and the quality of both the sound and the video is really, really good. For a lot of people, Marcus, I think if they saw this at that time, it made them feel that this was one of the most killer fucking live bands out there. They did a bunch of songs like Killer on the Loose, We Will Be Strong, Genocide, Written to the American Buffalo in Chinatown. It was that period of the band, the Chinatown album. The incredible live energy is just jumping out of those little TV speakers. And you know, that's not an easy thing to do. I have to take a look at that one. I know we've got the link, and that's one of the Thin Lizzy videos that I do want to watch. And the more we dig into them, the more and more I like this band, especially that classic lineup and the things that they did together with their sound and with their influence and Phil being a great storyteller and songwriter, and his voice really made you feel it, too. And that was one of the many powers of them, besides the fact that he had that charisma thing that you either got it or you don't, and he's got it. And you felt it when he was on stage. And this is the era, Marcus, where they're starting to move out of their initial phase and trying to extend their career. And we've talked about this before on the podcast with songs like Cold Sweat, right, as part of the new wave of British heavy metal. But here, making their bones as a live band, that's what it's really all about when it comes down to it. Their live shows were notorious all across Europe. They weren't getting a lot of traction in the U.S. at that point. Plus, they'd had tour cancellations and things like that. But in 78, 79, 80, you know, they had the Live and Dangerous album that came out. And U2 used that album as a blueprint for live shows. I saw a four-part documentary on YouTube, and all of the members of the band were in this documentary through video video interviews and audio interviews scattered throughout the documentary and at some point Bono's name came up in this documentary and Bono was like this album was such an inspiration for us as a live album this was the blueprint that we used when developing our sound and our live stage show and part of why you too felt that even if they were playing to eight people in a club they were still on stage in an arena rocking 80,000 and people's faces off. You might think it's a natural thing being a band from Ireland and maybe the first big rock band from Ireland to inspire the big rock band from Ireland. <laughs> 
but it was really, really, really a short walk, apparently. And that's great. That's the way things should be connected within a musical culture. But that's the way that artists find each other or find their connections to each other, ways that we don't think about as the consumers, you know, as the listeners. But it matters to them. And it's kind of cool to find that inside the story of Thin Lizzy, which is what we're talking about on this episode of The Imbalance History. You could say they have an imbalanced history because of all the changes and, you know, there's some, uh, you know, all revolving around the main, mm-hmm. you know, creative axis there. Heroin became a problem within the band quite badly. And alcohol, alcohol was a well. terrible thing, like terribly over-the-top alcohol. Yeah. And uh, Phil getting hepatitis at one point on tour and having to pull out, and it seemed that he tend to have a habit of getting sick at the wrong time. Might be partially to the drugs and the alcohol. Timing's everything timing too, well, man. But... You know how it goes. You have a couple situations where that happens, and people don't call anymore. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely, and that happened with their uh, wanting to be big in the U.S. I know we want to get into the band's music in the second half of the episode here, but can we talk a little bit about Phil as a solo artist, solo in Soho in 80, an attempt to kind of break out on his own. The Phil Lynott album in 82. Yeah, definitely. I didn't get a chance to listen to any of his solo music in prep. I was focusing more on the Thin Lizzy stuff, but I would love to talk about this aspect of him because he's such a fascinating and deep character. It may be a whole episode just about this face of him because it is something different from what he was pursuing with Thin Lizzy before and after. All, as we've talked about, artists were all in the same struggle to stay relevant when music tides were changing. All I know, man, is when we get into the nitty-gritty of it all, you're going to be listening to some bits of some of the greatest songs from my high school ute. (laughs) Thin Lizzy was a big part of our high school soundtrack, you know? Absolutely. They had that sound that made you feel good, that made you want to move, that made you want to hang out and party. It was that thing. And another interesting aspect of Phil Lynott and his character is and we'll talk about some of these songs in the second half, is the character Johnny that comes up, which is Phil Lynott talking about himself in third person or as a different character named Johnny. That will come up in some of these great songs that they wrote over the years. He's got some of the great recurring characters, Johnny or Johnny the Fox, right? Yeah. Rosalie is always showing up somewhere. Poor Romeo or Romeo and the great Valentino, all recurring (laughs) characters in the uh, lyrical palette of Phil Lina. Every now and then, you know, when we do this podcast, we actually get inspired ourselves a little bit. And I had this thought that when it comes to Thin Lizzy, that there's gallantry in the grooves. There's his heart spilled out at 33 and a third RPMs. He does it on every record. And I was also reminded about how much Gary Moore's tone fucking kills when I was listening through. And speaking of going through, I thought, why not draw the path as best as we can without, you know, getting too much into it. And that was this month. And then this month became that month. No. But the idea of Thin Lizzy did start as that trio you talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Phil, Eric Bell, and Brian, Brian Downey. And then, uh, you know, Gary Moore adding parts to tracks here and there. And the thing that surprised me that I learned is that Midge Jure was involved doing backup vocals right at the very beginning. Midge and Phil were friends and Ultravox was in the middle of recording and not touring when Phil called and said, hey, man, I need a touring guitarist. How about coming with me? And he said, that? okay. I just never knew. And... I just never knew, man. Yeah. It's so cool to learn shit, you know? And there really wasn't much connection out there 
especially in the U.S., until the rocker and uh, whiskey in the jar you mentioned early starts to hit on radio here in the States on Nightlife. It's Scott Gorham and Brian Robertson joining on guitars. That's that two guitarists, and we'll never be without one again, right? Yeah. And that's where we first hear Rosalie on Bob Seger's song. I never knew it was a Seger song, Rosalie. And it hits for the band. That's when I started to hear him on the radio. 76, the world explodes for them on Jailbreak. The boys are back in town. The Cowboys song, John Alcock producing. Then Johnny the Fox, we talked about the character. Well, the album doesn't have that big of an impact. But Phil Collins is on that album doing some percussion. Back in 77 with Bad Reputation, Dancing in the Moonlight, Tony Visconti at the board. Then you mentioned it, Marcus, Live and Dangerous, inspiring you too. And a very, very important album in cementing them as a band and as a live band. When I was reading and, and getting caught up on stuff as we were getting ready to go on this episode, I kept seeing stuff hyping the album Black Rose, and I wasn't sure why. And then I went in and I listened to it, and I really got the idea that the reviewers were right, that this really is maybe their lost masterpiece. And we'll talk about that as we go through you know, songs like Waiting for an Alibi. Mm-hmm. Then Gary Moore returns. Then Ryan Robertson departs. It might be the best-sounding album of the band's career there with Tony Visconti again. Then Chinatown with Snowy White. White on guitar, who of course was on the verge of doing all that wall work, starting with the tour in 1980 with the Pink Floyd guys. And you get the title track, there's Midge, you're on backing vocals, and then Renegade in 81. Thunder and Lightning in 83, that's when John Sykes joins, and that album has that song Cold Sweat that we were talking about in the uh, new wave of British heavy metal episode. And that's pretty much it, though. They didn't really go on much further as a band with new recordings. There were some live albums, of course, and compilations, and, uh, and as as we know, at that point, Phil was uh, pretty far along, and to lose him at such a young age was mm-hmm. was sad for everyone. Oh, very sad. I remember when he passed away, it was early January, and it was like, what? I think I was in high school when he passed away and couldn't believe it. It was like my senior year or something like that, junior year. And we were shocked because then Lizzie was a staple on the AOR stations in Colorado. Well, look at it this way. He was only like eight or nine years older than me. So he was kind of like a guy who was only a little older than us as far as a rocker. And, mm-hmm. and for somebody like that, almost our age to die, mm-hmm. it was really upsetting. Yeah, very much so. You know, some of the cool things that I learned about this band in getting ready for this episode, like how they came up with their name on the cover of a John Mayle album. Eric Clapton's reading a Beano comic. One of the characters is Tin Lizzie, a female villain, but the Irish don't say Tin, so Phil called it Thin Lizzie, and that's pretty much how the name came. And those were his words in one of the uh, audio doc. Er- what do the Irish say instead of Tin? Thin. Oh, they say Thin. So if like. Yeah. It's a thin roof, thin can. <laughs> oh, know. you know, I'm, I'm asking I don't know, I don't know. I don't know not... the Irish language at all. I'm just saying what Oh, no, I'm going to piss it off the Irish. I'm in big trouble. Remember, oh, kids, please. before you send your hate mail, remember I'm Quarter Kelly, okay? And remember this. Uh, <laughs> there's a documentary where Phil explained the story himself, and I was just repeating his words. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to dig into the albums, the albums, the vinyl. And I think that's where every album that Thin Lizzy ever released started out on vinyl, later to CD Shore. And it was at times, it was lo-fi, and we loved it. And we're going to dig into that next on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's fall, and I know, Marcus, that you've got a ton of anecdotal stories about your feet. 
and riding and running and all that stuff that you do in the fall. And I know bold foot socks are part of your regiment, right? Absolutely. They wick moisture off your feet and keep them dry. I do wear the bold foot socks when I bike and never, ever have I had swampy feet. And I've ridden on almost a hundred degree heat index day and my feet right, weren't this swampy. Summer so right? yeah, I really like what they do. And another bonus is they're American made. Boldfoot Socks is a company that uh, Josh got into because he did a 100K thing. Where, who can, Man, who has time for that? Man, he's amazing. So he goes and does this 100K in these Boldfoot Socks, and the socks perform so well, he believes, and he's right, that these socks are really going to revolutionize footwear for people who work out and ride, especially uh, someone like you who rides a lot on their on their bike. And let's not forget, Josh did that like hundred mile run in the Nevada desert. That what? is gnarly and tough. And he donates portions of his sales to military charities, which is awesome. So go check out their amazing variety of colors and styles. Great socks, and you can find them all at boldfoot.com. Thanks to them for their support of the podcast. As always, Boldfoot Socks, American grown, American sewn. So much has been happening this year and changing at Crooked Eye Brewery, our sponsor for a long time now, Marcus. Since 2014, they've been pouring the cure for what ails you, but then they added craft cocktails. Then they added ciders. And recently, they opened the Crooked Eye Kitchen and Salty Vets Barbecue being served at the premises. You used to have to bring something with you. Now just bring your appetite. The long-term business plan of Crooked Eye has been very smart. Whatever they were going to do before the pandemic had to change drastically, and they've made the adjustments. And as we've slowly opened up, they've slowly continued to add and add and create more. And it's much to the delight of the people going in there all the time, because like you've said, every night's a party, a different kind of party over at Crooked Eye. It's a random party. what the music is, like the Blues Jam or the second Tuesday of the month with my vinyl night, which is anything you want it to be. The Crooked Eye Band and all the other performers who make it fun, Mafia, all performing, check it all out. And the way to find out about who's playing when is on their Facebook. That's really the best way to keep up, but the website too, I guess. So if you're looking for a place to go, make a plan, grab a friend, meet at Crooked Eye in the heart of Hatboro, serving you since 2014. Back and refreshed, Ray and Marcus ready to go on the music of Thin Lizzy in this episode of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. That first album was just kind of a framework, wasn't it, Marcus? The self-titled debut album. It really was, but it was also such a different sound than the Thin Lizzy that we grew up with. It was more folky, more traditional Irish uh, music was incorporated into their sound. You also had a lot of R&B and a lot of blues and soul, too, because that music was very important in the youth of Phil Linett and much of the music he listened to as a child. And was also in vogue as far as larger music trends, so it kind of makes sense. 
There were a couple of songs that stood out on this debut album. I really liked the first track, which was The Friendly Ranger at Clontarf Castle. And I apologize if I mispronounced the name Clontarf. But, well, we always do. But that song I found to be really beautiful. Also, Look What the Wind Blew In, I feel like, is one of those songs that maybe gave us a feel for what Thin Lizzy would become. And maybe was one of those basis songs that really set the foundation for who they were. And then in one of the later remixes or the EP that came alongside it with bonus tracks, there's a song called Dublin and Martin Popoff said that that was one of his greatest lyrics at that point. And when his first well, I great I why lyric, it didn't make the album then, you know? It's weird, right? It's funny how bands choose songs and you're like, why do these songs not make it? And why do they do? We'll get into that one point on uh, The Imbalance History. God, we could spend the rest of our lives doing that. <laughs> That's true, you know. <laughs> true. The second album, Shades of a Blue Orphanage, didn't really ring true with me. I listened through, and uh, I really didn't find anything that really grabbed me. And I know that they're building, and they're starting to assemble what's going to happen. And maybe the first signs of it happening is on uh, 1973's Vagabonds of the Western World. Somewhere along the line from working with the guy who wrote Mandy earlier in their career to now, they kind of took over, Marcus. Nick Tauber helping out his producer and the song The Rocker standing out. It's written by all three, Downey, Lynott, and Eric Bell. And it starts to get that kind of a hook into radio ears that you want when you're a young band on the come. I also really enjoyed The Hero and the Madman while listening to this one. A Vagabond of the Western World was a fun listen. Gonna Creep Up on You is one that I really enjoyed as well. And it just really was a fun listen because there was so much growth between that first album and where they were here and you could yes. hear it you could really Absolutely. hear it especially in the songwriting of phil Linett. in the first half of the episode marcus we were talking about the nightlife period and that's where scott gorham and brian robertson come on board dual guitars because he's not going to get screwed by a, an angry guitarist again i just thought that was kind of like your motivation as an artist it's like all right i don't know how the guys look at that they go all right i guess you're not gonna leave right now i'm a thin lizzy i'm not leaving right we're on our way here and uh, that album had some really great stuff on it, too, including an ode to his mother, Philomena.
Scott Gorham wasn't really hip on this album, and he said that the rest of the band wasn't too hip on it either because they still weren't fully in their groove as a four-piece, and they were finding themselves, and they didn't have that classic sound that started with The Boys Are Back in Town, and they didn't have the dual lead, the dual rhythm, and they were still learning to play off of each other. And look at this album as their introduction to that as a concept, too. I agree with you. I think it's much better than they give themselves credit for that they would critique themselves on because it's got some great tunes like you mentioned uh nightlife's a great tune philomena's beautiful banshee you know shalala's a fun jam too this album really is a rocker and takes them to the heavier heavier sound and the foundation of two guitarists with nightlife one of the things that phil wanted with this sound was a full frontal attack and he wanted to hit you with both guitarists and the bass as as well as the drums and you got it especially when you saw them live and it starts to come to fruition on 1975's album fighting it's almost like they're fighting each other they're fighting everybody to get to the head of the pack of rock and roll with bob seeger's rosalie getting them on the radio in the states Great choice of a cover, and they do that song a solid. Listen to it if you've never heard it. Go back and revisit it if you haven't listened to it in a long time, because I think you will really enjoy it. King's Vengeance kicks ass on that one, Fighting My Way Back. For those who love to live, another really nice, uplifting song. He just writes beautiful songs, and his sexy, charismatic vibe really enhances at this point. And if you listen to the solo on Wild One, I think that's the song that really brings the two-guitar attack to light.
and sonically, it really is setting the stage for what is about to happen for Thin Lizzy in 1976, the year of my high school graduation. We knew they were bubbling <laughs> under, Marcus, screaming out of your radio in the winter of 1976, the songs from Jailbreak. The title <laughs> track, always a favorite. Forget the boys are back in town. I've heard it 10,000 times. I never get tired of it, though. Isn't that amazing? But there's the Cowboys song and all these great songs and characters all coming to life in a way that sounds amazing to a teenagers in America and all over the fucking world. Was Jailbreak your senior song by chance? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> also, Emerald is a beautiful song on that album. And Romeo and the Lonely Girl, another really yeah. fun one. I really enjoyed listening to Angel from the Coast this week. And this album is so solid. And this is one of those albums, if you listen to it, you've got to listen to it from start to finish in order. You have to do it that way. And their biggest hit was originally not going to be on the album as well. The band wasn't keen on it. And the label was like, yeah, I think you should record it. This is a good song. And that song song is the boys are back in town So now they've broken out and the heat is on. Now they have to have the follow-up, right? A lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. Yeah. 70s artists had a lot of that shit on them that maybe artists today don't feel as much. Just a different world, you know? But they had to call on Johnny and his pal Rocky and some of the other characters like Sweet Marie, right? Get them all together. Try to make this thing go forward. And the fan base is growing, and the shows are becoming legend, but it's not as big of a hit record. I don't understand why, after listening back to it, Johnny and Me the... Me either. Never Seriously, got it. Johnny and the Fox meets Jimmy the Weed is a great tune, and it's by yeah. far their funkiest tune that they've ever done. And the fact that they were able to use that Thin Lizzy sound and functify it really, really showed how talented this band was. That's right. That's right. And that's what led to the comeback. I think they got a fierce thing in their head... We're going to come back from this and do better. They hook up with Tony Visconti. They get in the studio and they make bad reputation. That song, that title track is the embodiment of what we're talking about right here. That attacking sound. You got a bad reputation. I had so much fun listening back to this album from front to back as well, and the oh, band so was grooving hard, and they were in full throttle at this point, and the chemistry was strong, and the songwriting was there, having Visconti at the helm yep. really, really made a big difference. Dancing in the Moonlight, It's Caught Me in Its Spotlight is one of the most underrated songs in rock and roll, period. When I passed you in the door. 
doesn't get as much radio play as their other tunes because it is a beauty. (laughs) Our three-part harmony, as Three Dog Night (laughs) said. (laughs) It's the C word, folks. (laughs) And not the one you Brits like to throw around. (laughs) So that brings us around to 1979, Marcus, and that album I mentioned at the beginning called Black Rose, a rock legend. That's a little like, you know, sanctimonious, don't you think? Pretentious, maybe? A rock legend. However, Visconti helped them to craft a rock legend, and if I could talk to him one time, it'd be one of the albums I'd thank him most for. Why is that? Just the sound. He got Gary Moore in where he needed him, right, to work with Gorham and Robertson, and they're going, man. It sounded great. The sound quality, the production sound is maybe some of their best, where a lot of it had that raw, lo-fi feel in the drums. He's got it going on all cylinders. Listen to Do Anything You Want To. That's one of the greatest songs. And oh, by the way, if you notice, the really great songs on the credits were written by Phil, by himself for the most part, on all these amazing inventive songs that not everybody could come up with. He came up with stuff like that. We're waiting for an alibi, dude. Valentino got a boogie shop. And what he takes, he gives for what he's got. And what he's got, he says he has not stole from anyone. It's not that he don't tell the truth. Or even that he misspent a you. It's just these holes of proof. But you know something's wrong. Waiting for an alibi. This album, really, really solid. And a nice little uh, spicy fact to this album, Huey Lewis plays harmonica on Sarah and with love. Huey Lewis rocks. So off the backside of that, it's 1980 and they're working on a new album, trying to keep that train rolling. And they hit to a certain degree with Chinatown. The title track, Chinatown, great song. Got all the riffs. You know, they knew what to play. They just had to find ways to make the songs great. And that's what they worked on keeping going. And I got to mention that this is the album that Snowy White played on, coming in just in time to help to save the whole thing. And unfortunately, I think that contributed to some of the things not always going great inside of Thin Lizzy at times, that coming and going discord. When it comes to the critics, a lot of times, Marcus, I throw it all aside because, you know, you know what you know when you hear something. But 1981's Renegade didn't get anybody 
excited. Not the critics, not the fans. People didn't go to the radio for it. People didn't get the uh, record at the bins. So it was not a great day. And this is around the time that Phil's starting to think about doing a solo thing to see if that'll work, too. Yeah, there was a lot of inner turmoil in the band, and heroin was a big part of that problem. A big part of that problem. And that could be one of the many reasons why Robertson left the band, because he didn't want to deal with the heroin. We've talked about it before, Marcus. The next album coming out in 1983, Thunder and Lightning, featuring Cold Sweat. Good stuff. And the band continues to be relevant. Actually gets back on track a bit, right? Mm-hmm. They see sales. They see airplay. They got much more love from the media this time around than they have for their previous couple of albums. So, And the last album is Thin Lizzy and Phil's Life is Life. It's a live album, mm-hmm. and it's called Life. It's a double live album called Life. That's a lot of life. And it's a pretty power-packed set list if you want to uh, check this album out as well. All just monster songs from all of their albums and all the way through. It just thin lizzies you. (laughs) Well, when it comes down to it, man, some bands can continue to go on when a member passes on. But face it, when it comes to Thin Lizzy without Phil Linett, there was no reason to go on. Nobody thought, oh, let's recruit somebody and go on. He was the guy. It was his thing. It was his band, and it would be rock and roll heresy to continue Thin Lizzy beyond that, other than as a live tribute to Phil. Who, by the way, his mother campaigned for years to get a tribute, a statue, and they finally built it in his image in Dublin. I was just happy when that happened. It did take her until 2005 to get it done, though. It's a nice statue. Not as thrilled about the little one I see being sold as Phil in a, an active attack base position. Little uh, mini statues being sold online. I've been seeing them, and I, it's a good likeness of them, but, you know, who are we benefiting here? True. In a posthumous situation. Good point. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Philomena passed away recently as well. Yes. A quick response from the research department. Uh, Philomena Lynott passed away June 12th, 2019 at age 88. In Dublin. She wasn't a fragile flower. Not at all. She was one tough cookie. (laughs) Proud of her, Phil. Very much so. And making sure that the rest of us never forget him either. That's one of the reasons we started down the road doing this episode, other than the fact we love the band so fucking much, dude. Absolutely. And they're one of those bands who has been a huge influence on rock and roll in the 80s. Those bands that use the two guitar attacks. They can, right. thank, they can thank Thin Lizzy for that because they were one of the progenitors of that ass-kicking two lead guitar, two rhythm guitar assaults on your senses. The boys are back in town may be the best example of it anywhere absolutely it's the one that we're most familiar with well one thing for sure if you redid the soundtrack of dazed and confused as my high school soundtrack aside from adding that cool in the gang that we talked about in previous episodes (laughs) you gotta put a healthy dose of all the music we've just been talking about from thin lizzie in there they were such an amazing band from that period in my life and through the 70s and beyond always there for us right even long after phil was gone the music's always there for us if you ever need 
some booty shake and rock and roll, something to lift your spirits, I highly recommend you choose Thin Lizzy. Not Jif? Because choosy mothers choose Jif. No, get chunky <laughs> with Thin Lizzy. <laughs> One of those crazy rock and roll stories, really, when you boil it down to it, Marcus. Things don't always go the way you plan. And you innovate and you improvise or you stop being a band. You stop being relevant. And Thin Lizzy, to the end, doing their best to stay relevant. I wish that Phil had lightened up on the bottle and maybe the hard drugs didn't pull apart the band as much and that they continued in a healthier way that a lot of people were doing. Ironically, the band that's the epitome of that is the band that they inspired from Dublin themselves, the great U2. Those guys... Whatever their little poisons are in their private moments, man, they are living right. Because look at them four motherfuckers. They look like they, you know, hardly aged at all. That is true. They've got some sort of magic on their side. <laughs> the look of the Irish. That is a very, very real thing. and Not to be trifled with, lad. I know. <laughs> I would never mess with that. I'll tell you what, I love Gary Moore as a solo artist and uh, really enjoy a lot of his albums. If you've never heard any of Gary Moore's solo stuff, his blues albums, other stuff, very, very tasty. And just go find him on your music service. That's Gary Moore with two O's and an E on the end. I think he's one of the missing superstars in that guitar pantheon. You know, he was always so great. You know, I always enjoyed his tasty playing, man. So we're just going to get a bag full of tasty riffs, man. And let's just kind of roll on with Thin Lizzy. I'm getting into the imbalance time machine. I'm going back to like 1975, 6. <laughs> you want to go with me, man? It could be fun. Sure. And away we go. Hey, don't forget to email us at imbalancehistory.com. Yes, go to the socials. Don't forget to call your mother. And uh, next time we're in the Dark Doc Media Studios, we'll do another episode about this great music that we love here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 